This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Welcome to Trumpet Hour. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and we appreciate you spending some of your time with us today. It has been 20 years since the United States military invaded the Middle Eastern nation of Iraq and removed Saddam Hussein's regime. And now, looking at the aftershocks of the past two decades, it's difficult to find a positive headline about this American decision. News analysts mostly conclude that the U.S. lost. So how is this possible? How could the mighty American superpower have lost the war in Iraq. And if that was the case, then who was the victor? For our first story of the show today, we'll examine these questions in a report from trumpet writer Mr. Abraham Blondo. From there, we'll take a look at the high-profile visit that former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett just made to Washington, D.C. This visit was notable for several reasons, and among them is just how sharply it contrasts with the situation with Israel's current prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. The Biden administration has declined to invite Netanyahu to Washington and has said that it has no plans of doing so in the near term. So what's behind this and what are the implications? For our second segment of the show today, we'll hear all about that in a report from trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic. The third segment today will look at mendacity, perfidy, beguilement, and deception. It'll examine the lies that have become foundational to the political strategy of many American politicians, lying as a way of life and as a way of leadership. This will be covered in a report by trumpet writer Rufaro Manyepa. And our last word today is about the role of God as a builder. This is part of his makeup that is really emphasized throughout the scriptures, and it has implications for each one of us. So that'll be at the end of the program today, but we'll now begin with a retrospective, looking back on 20 years since America invaded Iraq. In this report, from Mr. Abraham Blondeau. Captain Doug Zembiak was called the Lion of Fallujah by his men. Fearless, compassionate, and fierce, Zembiak epitomized combat leadership on the ground in Iraq. He exposed himself to enemy fire countless times to direct the battle or protect his men. In 2004, American Marines were in the middle of a brutal urban struggle in the city of Fallujah. Operation Vigilant Resolve was a house-to-house battle in which the United States forces were searching and destroying insurgents. Zambiak died in 2007 while leading his team on a raid. Many brave men and women died during the Iraq War. It has now been 20 years since the United States invaded Iraq and removed Saddam Hussein from power. Now looking at the aftershocks of the past two decades, The bravery of the U.S. military is perhaps the only positive legacy from the war in Iraq. The costs of this war were high. The conflict cost $2 trillion, which amounts to $8,000 per American. Around 170,000 American troops operated in the country over a 16-year period. Around 100,000 Iraqis died in the war. 5 million Iraqi children became orphans and four to five million people were displaced due to the war. 4,550 American service members and 3,793 contractors died in the war. 31,994 Americans were wounded in action. Nearly $200 billion have been spent on health care services for Iraq war veterans. It has been hard to find a positive headline about this anniversary. News analysts mostly conclude that America lost. How is that possible? How could the U.S. superpower lose the war in Iraq? And who was the victor? Even before President George W. Bush announced the launch of Operation Iraqi Freedom on March 18, 2003, 
the trumpet predicted that any American intervention in Iraq would fail. Listen to President Bush's announcement. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign. This was a consequential moment in American history. When the statue of Saddam Hussein was toppled in Baghdad, Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry wrote that America would not win the war. Twenty years later, these predictions have come to pass. That is tomorrow's news today. How could the Trumpet know that America would fail and who the real winner of the war would be? Because we rely on the sure word of Bible prophecy. September 11, 2001 permanently changed America. Islamic terrorism had dealt a heavy blow to the world's lone superpower. Americans were angry and wanted to hold those responsible accountable. Only one week later, the U.S. government authorized the invasion of Afghanistan to track down Osama bin Laden and the Taliban. As President Bush mulled over an invasion of Iraq, we wrote in the November 2002 Trumpet issue in an article titled, What President Bush Doesn't Know, quote, Whatever war efforts America undertakes in Iraq will prove shortly thereafter to have been spent in vain, not necessarily because they were unjustified or poorly planned or incompetently executed, but because America is cursed. A major concern, should Iraq be taken out as a power in the Middle East, is the destabilizing of the region. If Saddam is removed with no clear, strong successor, Iran would come to the fore even more. End quote. Listen to what Mr. Gerald Flurry wrote in 1994. He reminds us of this quote in his latest Key of David on the King of the South. I wrote this in December 1994. This is a trumpet article titled, Is Iraq About to Fall to Iran? Here's what I wrote. The most powerful Arab country in the Middle East is Iran. Can you imagine the power they would have if they gained control of Iraq, the second largest oil-producing country in the world? Now, that essentially has happened. Iran has great control over Iraq today, and they have all that oil, and a lot of people just don't understand how powerful that Iran is becoming in the Middle East. Since 1994, Mr. Flory has prophesied that Iran would become the King of the South, mentioned in Daniel 11. This prophecy forms the lens in which to view the Iraq War. Following the invasion and lightning success of, the, of America's offensive, Mr. Floyd wrote in the June 2003 Trumpet article, Is Iraq About to Fall to Iran? Quote, Now that Iraq has been taken out of the picture, Iran is even closer to becoming the reigning king of the Middle East. It may seem shocking, given the U.S. presence in the region right now, but prophecy indicates that in pursuit of its goal, Iran will probably take over Iraq. At least, it will have a heavy influence over the Iraqi people. The Iraq campaign was the latest round in America's global war on terrorism. But where did all of this world's terrorism begin? Iraq is a dangerous part of the equation, but not the head of the snake. Saddam Hussein was the only leader that Iran feared. Now the U.S. has taken him out of the way. But does America have the will or strength to guard the spoils of war? Prophecy states that it does not. End quote. Despite the shock and awe displayed by the American military and its footprint in the country, Mr. Floyd predicted Iran would be the winner of the Iraq War. This would mainly happen because America lacked the will to go after the head of the terrorist snake, which is Iran. This view that America lacked the willpower to use its military might 
is found in Leviticus 26. Quote, and I will break the pride of your power, end quote, which is found in verse 19. America still has the power, but is too faint of heart to use it. Verse 20 says, quote, and your strength shall be spent in vain, end quote. The military, economic, and human resources would be spent in vain without achieving victory. That same June 2003 Trumpet issue had another article, Weakness in Victory, in which we wrote, quote, Is America now under this curse? It may seem almost silly to presume so. The victory in Iraq was impressive, powerful, efficient. A regime tumbled and a dictator disappeared in three quick weeks. In some ways, America today seems unprecedentedly strong, most particularly because it had a decisive president who is willing to stake his reputation on unpopular decisions he believes to be right. But there are significant aspects of the Iraq campaign and its aftermath that actually show how the nation has an alarmingly faint heart. End quote. At the same time this trumpet was published, President Bush gave his mission accomplished speech on May 1st, 2003. Take a listen to what President Bush said. My fellow Americans, major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed. And now our coalition is engaged in securing and reconstructing that country. Later that month, the Iraqi army was disbanded, dispersing thousands of angry, trained men throughout the country. Soon after that, the insurgency war began against America's occupation. The war took place on two fronts. First, there was the Sunni Muslim insurgents in the countryside who resented the U.S. intervention and who were made up of former members of the Iraqi army. They were led by the terrorist Abu Musab Zarqawi. Second, there was a Shiite Muslim insurgents based in the capital of Baghdad, led by Shia clerk Motada al-Sadr. Sadr led sectarian death squads throughout the city and was supported by Iran, who supplied his militia with weapons and explosive devices that killed and maimed many Americans. As Iraq descended into a civil war where both sides fought against America, Mr. Flurry wrote in the November 2003 trumpet in the article Why We Cannot Win the War Against Terrorism, quote, The only way to win such a war is to deal with the main source of the terrorism, or cut off the head of the terrorist snake. But neither the U.S. nor Israel has the will to tackle Iran, even though it is the key part of the axis of evil in the Middle East. However, we can't win this war unless we also remove Iran's leadership. But American and British leaders are overwhelmingly liberal, and the press is dangerously pacifist. Our people lack the will to win this war against terrorism. Superpowers cannot survive in this evil, warring world without the will to wage long, hard wars. This is the real world in which we live. Fantasies won't change that reality. We are fighting the terrorist war the way state-sponsored terrorists want to fight it, which means we can never win. They understand that they will win fighting the war their way. That is why they are waging this war of terror. Terrorist warfare would be a failure if we had the will to use our power against state-sponsored terrorism. End quote. This strong warning went unheeded and soon the broken will and half-measures of the superpower were on display for everyone to see. On March 31, 2004, four U.S. Blackwater contractors were taking a shortcut through Fallujah, the most dangerous city in Iraq, and drove into an ambush. Their two vehicles were riddled with bullet holes. Most people died instantly. Survivors were beaten to death and stabbed by children and young men. Their bodies were then doused in gasoline and burned into black, shard husks. One body was dismembered, and a leg was strung up from an electrical line. Two bodies were hung from a bridge. 
Children took their shoes and beat the charred body, shouting insults in Arabic, meaning, America has lost its nerve. The U.S. military, watching the scene unfold from a drone, did nothing to intervene. These scenes were broadcast around the world. The liberated Iraqis had just shamed the world superpower and mutilated American bodies. President Bush and the U.S. government were furious. The president ordered the Marines to take Fallujah and punish those responsible for the raid. After three days of intense fighting in April, President Bush ordered a 24-hour ceasefire because of false reports from Al Jazeera of Americans committing war crimes. The battle ended in a negotiation. However, the insurgents got control of the city. The Marines attacked again in September and took the city over a span of six weeks, costing many more American lives. The ringleader, Zarqawi, escaped and eventually established the Islamic State. The military might and courage of the troops was undermined by the weak will of the leadership time and time again. Men like Doug Zembiak laid down their lives for their country, only to have their strength spent in vain. This pattern happened over and again. Even the surge in 2007, led by General David Petraeus, was a half-measure that prevented an embarrassing collapse, but the Shiite and Sunni militants continue to exist to this day taking on different iterations throughout the years. Listen to what Mr. Gerald Flurry said in a 2007 personal appearance campaign in New York City. Now people can scoff at that if they want to, but the tide has turned in the Middle East. And why is it? You see, here we are fighting terrorism. And why is it that those three nations that are fighting terrorism can't seem to win anywhere? Is it because of God's vengeance? I mean, are we really a religious people? We talk about religion, but look how we violate this book. Jesus Christ said, you better live by every word of God. That's quite a, quite a standard. You don't have to listen to me, but you just watch and see what happens even in the next few months in the Middle East. You're going to see it swing very, swing very strongly in the favor of Iran. Mr. Bush said, may God continue to bless America. Now, we still have many of the blessings of God, but God is not continuing to bless America. From the outset, Saddam's removal placed Iraq on a political path to be dominated by Iran. Over the past 20 years, through all the suffering and instability, this remains true. The Iraq War was a case study on a superpower declining and Bible prophecy being fulfilled. In 2019, the U.S. Army released an extensive study on the lessons of the Iraq War. Its conclusion, quote, An emboldened and expansionist Iran appears to be the only victor, end quote. This is the same conclusion the trumpet predicted in 2002, over 20 years ago. This 20-year anniversary is not a pleasant one. The war affected the world in a profound way. Yet its prophetic legacy is the most important. The Iraq War fulfilled Bible prophecies, both of America's decline as a superpower and Iran's rise as a king of the South. Iran's belligerent rise is directly connected to the events that trigger the return of Jesus Christ. This is vital history and prophecy you need to know. To help explain all of this in more detail, Mr. Flory has just updated and expanded his booklet, The King of the South. He has been right about Iran since 1994. Read this book to learn more about Bible prophecy soon to be fulfilled.
Former Israeli Prime Minister Neftali Bennett has just accepted an invitation to visit Washington, D.C. He has met with a whole cast of American government officials, but at the same time, the current Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is being snubbed. As we'll hear about now in this report from trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic. Americans and Israelis are united by our shared commitment to democracy, economic prosperity, and regional security. The unbreakable bond between our two countries has never been stronger. So reads the Israel Fact Sheet on the United States State Department's website. The U.S. government often gives platitudes like this to the little country of Israel, which is often called America's best friend in the Middle East. But under the surface, there is a lot of tension between the two nations. The so-called unbreakable bond is being deliberately broken by America's choice. And this has been evident in how the government of U.S. President Joe Biden has been treating his Israeli counterpart, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, Mr. Netanyahu was Prime Minister when Joe Biden first entered the White House in 2021. He was voted out of office a few months later and returned to be Israel's Prime Minister for a third consecutive time late last year. From those early months to his third consecutive time now, Biden has yet to meet with Netanyahu, whether in Israel or in the United States. When asked earlier this year by media if he has plans to invite Netanyahu to Washington, Biden said no, not in the near term. Now some context, Netanyahu has been in politics for a long time. When he was first elected as prime minister in 1996, the very first trip abroad he made was to the United States, then under the Bill Clinton presidency. When he was elected for his second consecutive time in 2009, the first trip he made was again, the U.S., this time under Barack Obama. And in 2017, just a few weeks after becoming president, Donald Trump invited Netanyahu on a state visit to Washington. So with this history in mind, people interpret Biden's actions as a deliberate snub. But one wonders why this snub? While all of this is in the context of Netanyahu's ongoing judicial reform program, since taking office last year, Netanyahu and his coalition have made it a priority to change the composition of the committee in charge of selecting Supreme Court justices, as well as giving the Knesset, or Israel's parliament, more oversight on Supreme Court decisions. These reforms are controversial and have sent many Israelis to the street in protest. At one point, about 600,000 people nationwide were on the streets. But the Israeli Supreme Court is notorious both inside and outside of Israel, both among conservatives and liberals, for high levels of corruption and unaccountability. And we'll have a link in our show notes to an article with more information with that if you would like to learn more. Israeli conservatives have wanted reform in the Supreme Court for years. But the court, through judicial activism, has been a massive check on Netanyahu in terms of implementing his conservative agenda over the years. The U.S. government, under Barack Obama from 2009 to 2017, took offense to Netanyahu's conservative vision for Israel and tried to undermine his government in various ways. Washington has been pressuring Netanyahu to back off from judicial reform for the same reason. Last week, we got an interesting look as to how far the U.S. government is going to undermine Netanyahu. They still haven't invited him over to Washington. But they have no qualms with inviting a former Israeli prime minister over, one with a recent history of opposing Netanyahu. This man is Naftali Bennett. Bennett was Netanyahu's immediate successor after his second time in office. He was Israel's prime minister for only about a year, from June 2021 to June 2022. He came into power through coalition negotiations with Yair Lapid, 
the leader of Israel's left-wing opposition. Bennett heads a nominally right-wing party, and before the 2021 Knesset elections, he promised repeatedly he would not join Lapid's government. But once the dust was settled with the vote, he did exactly that. And even though his party won only 6% of the vote, he became Israel's new prime minister. The Bennett-Lapid coalition didn't last long. It collapsed the next year, and in the following election, the electorate had the revenge. Bennett's new right party won zero seats in the Knesset. His entire party today has absolutely no representation in the legislative government or the executive cabinet. He was only in power for a year, and he isn't even Israel's most recent ex-prime minister. That would be Lapid, who took over as interim prime minister until the election was held. Lapid still leads the second largest party in the Knesset, and if the U.S. government wanted to talk with an ex-Israeli prime minister that would still have some say over government policy, he would have been a better candidate. But instead, Bennett was the one to go to Washington. What are the details of his trip? Well, Bennett made the usual stops for a former world leader on an international visit. He held media interviews, he met with students at Georgetown University, and gave a speech at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. But he also met with representatives of the United States government. In an April 19th tweet, Bennett showed a picture of himself in a discussion with U.S. congressional representatives. In an interview with Iran International, meanwhile, released on April 20th, he also mentioned meeting with government representatives he would rather not disclose the identities of. Here is a segment from that interview. I don't speak on behalf of uh, America, but I can say after a bunch of meetings uh, with the, the relevant folks that America uh, has very little tolerance for uh, this uh, progress on the nuclear development, and so does the state of Israel. Israel will not accept and will not allow the Islamic Republic to go nuclear. Can you tell us a little bit about the sources, the, pers- the people that you talked to, was it at the White House, the State no. Department, the Biden administration? I, uh, I, I don't want to share that information. Is it very recent? You look very confident. It's from a few hours ago. There are a few things to note about this interview. Bennett specified that he couldn't speak on behalf of America, yet he was quite confident in speaking on behalf of Israel. Even though his party doesn't have a single seat in the Knesset, he is not a representative of the Israeli government in any way at the moment, yet he speaks as if he is. Meanwhile, when he spoke at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, A reporter asked Bennett if he wished to run for prime minister again. Bennett wouldn't answer. Nothing is officially announced as of yet, but Bennett's actions may suggest he is planning some sort of a political comeback. And this would be quite incredulous, to be frank. Netanyahu's coalition has a majority in the Knesset, and so the government doesn't have to worry so much, say, about a vote of no confidence, and Israel doesn't have to hold an election until almost four years from now. Bennett, meanwhile, because of the political shenanigans he did to get office the first time when he promised the electorate he wouldn't do that, is unpopular with both the left and the right, and he knows that. His chances of currently getting voted in as prime minister are at the moment next to zero. That is, unless he gets some help from powerful friends who are experienced in regime change, from powerful friends who want to get Netanyahu out of the way. When Bennett tweeted his photograph with the congressional representatives, he wrote in the tweet, It begins. But he didn't specify what was beginning. And why all the secrecy with these government contacts? Who were these people? Why were they talking about such sensitive information to Bennett 
as opposed to somebody actually involved in the Israeli government? Does the Israeli government even know what the Americans told Bennett? And why can't he even say the location or department of his contacts? The Obama team, which again the Biden presidency is a surrogate of, has been funding anti-Netanyahu groups for years now. And these include those protesting the judicial reform program. Barack Obama, when he was in the White House, helped bring in an openly Islamist government in Egypt, putting a threat to Israel's security right on its southern border. He has done everything he could to help Iran get a nuclear weapon. He is the most anti-Israel president to be in Washington. And he has Netanyahu in his crosshairs. Bennett, meanwhile, evidently still has political aspirations. He knows he most likely never will have a chance of becoming prime minister again through normal campaigning. The only reason he became prime minister the first time was through betrayal and collusion. He's done it once before. Is he planning a second round? In other words, are the Biden-Obama people planning a foreign-sponsored coup against Netanyahu? And is Bennett going to be a willing tool in their arsenal? We will have to wait and see. There are still many unknowns, but one thing is certain. Something smells very off with Bennett's visit to Washington. Daniel 8, verses 9 to 13, give a prophecy discussing an evil man, a tyrant, under the prophetic symbolism of a little horn, a man who thinks so highly of himself, he magnifies himself to God's level. This little horn rampages against the people of God, overcoming God's armies, treading God's sanctuary underfoot, and casting his truth to the ground. This was fulfilled anciently through Antiochus IV, a Greek king who slaughtered the Jews, defiled the temple of God with a statue of himself, and tried to crush the faith of Israel. Verse 17, however, shows this prophecy has an end-time context, a time far into the future when this prophecy was recorded. In fact, it is for our time today. There are several dimensions to this prophecy. One of them is that one man, a particular personality, a political Antiochus, if you will, is systematically trying to blot out the people of God and everything they stand for. This man exalts himself and his worldview above all, and he is determined to let nothing stand in his way of getting his will done, no matter who he steamrolls. The attack on the state of Israel by the U.S. government has everything to do with this attack by a modern-day Antiochus. Whether Bennett's Washington trip factors into this in any way remains to be seen. But either way, expect this assault to become more out in the open in the days and months to come. There is hope, however. The same Bible that prophesies of men like this Antiochus figure also prophesies of the solution to Israel's problems. The Bible reveals that this man's assault will be stopped. And once this happens, God promises an opportunity for Israel to return to him and be freed from their problems for good. But this offer will only come around once before even more dramatic political changes in Israel and the world happen. To learn more, Please request a free copy of Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Fleury's book, America Under Attack. You can find it at thetrumpet.com. It has been said that telling a lie leads a man from a grove into a jungle. 
It brings a man into a realm that is equal parts artificial and hostile. Falsehoods have no real staying power in the long term, especially since they not only disagree with the truth, but also generally quarrel among themselves. But while falsehoods do exist, corrupting the discourse and poisoning minds, they do a great deal of damage. And this is clear to see right now in the upper echelons of the American government, as we'll hear in this report from trumpet writer Rafaro Manyapa. We'll be back on Monday. That's how Tucker Carlson ended his show on Friday. But on Monday, Fox News announced that Carlson had left the network after they, quote, agreed to part ways. But to everyone, it's clear what really happened. Fox News fired Tucker Carlson, and they fired him for telling the truth. It all started during the 2020 presidential elections when Fox declared the state of Arizona for Joe Biden while there were still hours of counting to go. Tucker didn't say much about this publicly, but due to the recent Fox versus Dominion lawsuits, some of the internal conversations have been revealed. Right after Fox management called the state of Arizona for Biden, Carlson texted his producer and said, quote, Do the executives know how much credibility and trust we've lost with our audience? We're playing with fire for real, end quote. Time has revealed that Carlson was hamstrung by the management at Fox News. He wasn't free to tell the truth. But over the last few months, he began asking more and more questions. He started asking about the stolen election. He started asking about who Ray Epps is and what really happened on January 6th. He started asking questions about why the release of the COVID vaccine coincided with an uptick in sudden deaths. Most importantly, Tucker Carlson began asking who is really in charge in the White House. Because it has become increasingly evident that the current administration thrives in a very particular kind of dishonesty. Consider when the New York Post broke the story about Hunter's laptop and 51 former national security and intelligence officials rushed in to discredit the story as Russian disinformation. When President Donald Trump brought it up in the second presidential debate in 2020, Joe Biden angrily cited these former officials, saying that what Trump accused him of, quote, is a bunch of garbage. Nobody believes it except him and his good friend Rudy Giuliani, end quote. Well, last week, we found out that it is Joe Biden's presidential campaign that asked former intelligence officials to say the story was Russian disinformation in the first place. These aren't the incoherent bumblings of a career politician going senile. These are some of the lies that form the basis of an administration dedicated to the destruction of America. And here are some more examples of their lies. According to a new bombshell letter from an IRS whistleblower, Attorney General Merrick Garland lied to Congress and was involved in covering up the Hunter Biden criminal investigation. Another one, FBI Director Christopher Wray lied when he said his department did not collude with Twitter to manipulate discourse and free speech on the online platform, even when the Twitter files had revealed that it did. Dr. Anthony Fauci lied when he said that COVID-19 came from bats and not from the government-funded Wuhan lab in China. He lied when he said that the vaccine was completely safe and would prevent infection. Then he lied when he said that the booster, and then the second booster, and then the third booster would finally do the trick. Joe Biden lied when he blamed inflation on the, quote, unfair and brutal war in Ukraine, and not at all on the disastrous economic policies of his administration. He lied when he called January 6, 2021, the greatest threat to America since the Civil War. 
that's greater than the fentanyl crisis, the southern border crisis, the mutilation of children by transgender fanatics, more than Pearl Harbor and more than 9-11. These are some of the specific lies they have told, but the radical left continues to lie every day. It is lying that the Second Amendment is the reason for gun violence. It is lying that anti-black racism is thriving in America. It is lying that gender transitioning, mutilation, and castration is the solution for all young Americans who are sexually confused and dissatisfied. And in fact, in many cases, these lies are creating the crises. The lie that black people are oppressed is deepening the racial divide, radicalizing hundreds of thousands. The lie that humans are more than just male and female is creating a generation of sexually confused young people. The lie that the Second Amendment is the problem is the reason why the extreme black-on-black violence in cities like Chicago continues to go ignored. Tucker Carlson had the most popular cable news show, drawing over 3 million viewers. That's how much Americans wanted to hear the truth. But those running the country don't want you to know the truth. The truth is under attack. And it's very easy to think that it's Fox News versus CNN or liberals versus conservatives. It isn't. It's truth versus lies. Because Fox News isn't the home of truth, it increasingly isn't. The firing of Tucker Carlson is a warning to everyone else at Fox, everyone else in conservative media, that if you stand up for the truth, no matter how high your ratings or viewership are, this is what will happen. Today, lies are everywhere. They inform the movies and the television shows you watch. They are in music and in advertising. They are firmly embedded in celebrity and popular culture. Lies and liars populate every part of the public, the media, the news, the military, and the government. And for the last 13 years, these particularly dangerous lies have been growing and growing. And they started off with a man who called racism America's original sin. A man who used Mexican drug wars to attack the Second Amendment. A man who made it his mission to fundamentally transform America. Most politicians are dishonest, but these endemic lies are down to one man, Barack Obama. America is being run by liars, and Obama is at the head of them. Lies are how the Democrats worked to take down General Michael Flynn. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, writes, Lying is the modus operandi of these Obama-era officials. They lie as a way of life. That's how all these people attached to Obama behave. They're still calling American hero Michael Flynn a clandestine agent of Russia, Mr. Flurry writes. These officials have been repeatedly exposed for such deception. They believe that it is right to lie when it advances their agenda and is for, quote, an important purpose. They have no fixed principles, Mr. Flurry says. And very few will hold them to account. This is what the power of Satan will do. It is frightening. Now, it might be out of fashion to talk about Satan the devil today, but as we have written for decades at the trumpet, the devil is real. And his impact on the world today is real, particularly in empowering the war against truth, just as the Bible foretold. In his day, Jesus Christ was confronted by radicals who wanted nothing more than unbridled power and influence. And he said of them, quote, You belong to your father, the devil, 
and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's John 8 verse 44 from the New International Version. Lying is so natural to Satan that it's like his mother tongue. He is the one who is in charge. No wonder America is being run by liars. The God of this world, as he is called in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, is the liar inspiring all of the lies we see today. Mr. Flurry writes in America under attack, As Jesus Christ said of the devil, there is no truth in him, none. And the radical left lie like the devil. That is the spirit behind these people who will say and do anything to accomplish their goals. The way they worked to destroy the life of Michael Flynn, an upstanding American patriot, is chilling proof. They will stop at nothing to take over the government and align America with the government of Iran and other tyrannical states. Every time they are challenged on anything illegal they have done, they lie over and over again. Yet still, when people ask them a question, somehow, no matter how outrageous the answer, they believe them. The spirit of deception is frighteningly deep. These people are influenced by the devil. The radical left today is waging a war on truth. The spirit of deception, Mr. Flurry wrote off, permeates through the government, the media, movies, television, all of society. Satan is the source of these lies, and the Bible says in Revelation 12 verse 9 that he has deceived the whole world. The only tonic to these lies is the source of truth. Ultimately, Tucker Carlson isn't the source. Fox News certainly isn't. The only way to receive life-saving, liberating truth is to go to God and to look to what he says in the Bible. This attack on truth was prophesied and it's clearly laid out in the Bible. The Bible prophesied of a powerful leader empowered by Satan who would lie as a way of life and launch an all-out assault on truth, law, and order in America. It prophesied of his efforts to blot out the very name of America. But the Bible also prophesied that God would use another man to save America from destruction and from these radical forces. Request your free copy of America Under Attack and study it alongside your Bible. Lies are everywhere. But if we prayerfully ask God to show us the truth and we look to his word for it, he will reveal it and set us free. Our last word today is about the role of God as a builder and the implications this has for each of us. For this, we'll turn to Mr. Steve Herkus. God is a builder. This reality is emphasized throughout the Bible. Great patriarchs and famous kings recognized God's role as a builder. Amazing physical building projects are discussed in the Bible. And some of these accounts include specific details concerning materials, measurements, and methods of construction. God is also working on spiritual building projects. And so it is worth asking, what is God building today? And it's also worth asking yourself, how is God working as a builder in your life today? 
Let's focus on an account in Ephesians chapter 2, and there we read in verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Here the Apostle Paul describes a house, the household of God. It is comprised of those whom God has called into his service today. This is a spiritual house, and it's a house that God has been building for a long time. Notice verse 20. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In this verse, the term built upon means to finish the structure of which the foundation has already been laid. God is building on that foundation today. In fact, he has almost completed this construction project. In his book, Mystery of the Ages, Herbert W. Armstrong explains, This scripture plainly reveals the temple to which the glorified world-ruling Christ shall come at his soon second coming. The church, then, is to grow into a holy temple, the spiritual temple, to which Christ shall come. Continuing in Ephesians, notice verses 21 through 22. In whom all the building, fitly framed together, grows unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together, for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So God is constructing a spiritual house, and just one house at that. Notice the beautiful language here that Paul uses to describe this structure. This house is fitly framed together. Let's think about that for a moment. God is a builder. Builders, of course, work with materials, wood, stone, steel, tile, glass, and so forth. And if God, the builder, is working with you today, then you are material for God's construction project. Let's take a trip to the hardware store. A craftsman enjoys selecting wood at the lumber yard. He will take his time to visually inspect each board, selecting for straightness, dismissing for defects. Timber that is splintered, bent, twisted, or even too knotty won't make the grade. With the parents' boards, he might be more fastidious. While searching to avoid flaws, at the same time, he might also be observing attractive patterns in the wood grain. If God has called you today, you have been carefully chosen. Now let's take a trip to a building site. Even after a piece of wood has been selected, it can change over time. If stacked loosely on a construction site, the board that was once straight will become twisted and bent. It could become unusable. To stay true, the board needs to be measured, cut, and fastened in its place in the building. When you look around a house that is under construction, you'll see offcuts of building materials all over the site. Framing, sheathing, tile and trim, it all has to be measured and cut to fit according to the plans for that structure. You know the old adage, measure twice, cut once. But sometimes a carpenter will have to measure and trim a piece of wood several times over to get it to fit just right. If he cuts too much off, it becomes too small, and it will have to be used somewhere else or not at all. If God has called you today, you need to be measured and worked with to fit into the structure that he is building according to his plans. He is, after all, constructing the household of God, and it is fitly framed together. How measurable are you? That's an important question each of us must ask ourselves. There is, after all, a measuring process in progress. Let's notice 
Revelation chapter 11 and the first verse, and there it says, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. This is a measuring instrument. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. The verse before this, Revelation 10 verse 11, gives us some very important context. In the booklet, Prophesy Again, which you can download or order for free on thetrumpet.com, Mr. Gerald Flurry explains, In Revelation 10 verse 11, God gives us our commission. It is a grand vision of what we're going to be doing, prophesying again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And notice then how God follows that vision with correction. He immediately talks about measuring us in chapter 11. God begins to measure us and show us where we need to change. That is a wonderful blessing from our loving Father. Every loving Father measures his children so they can be happy and successful. If we're going to prophesy again, we must worship in that temple and we have to be measured. That includes the altar, which symbolizes the ministry, including me, he says. And lastly, he adds, we all have to be measured. The second verse of Revelation 11 goes on to describe the chilling fate of those who don't want to be measured. God is a builder. The household of God is fitly framed together. And could it be built any other way? So this makes you wonder, what does it mean to be measured by God? And how does he measure? Builders use a number of measuring tools, tape measures, squares, laser levels, plumb bobs, and so on. And likewise, God also measures by several means. God measures us according to our obedience and love for his law. He measures us according to our submission to his loving family government. He measures us according to our support of the man he is working through today. He measures us according to our response to the book, Malachi's Message, which is the very message God sent to measure the church. He measures us according to how well we uphold his standards. He measures us according to our commitment and productivity for his work. He measures us according to how well we take correction. The list could go on, and these are weighty matters. We all have room to improve in them. And we will, if we are measurable. If we are measurable, God, as our builder, can work with us. If we're measurable, then we can be fitly framed together as the household of God. Last week, we sent the May-June issue of Royal Vision to press. You can request a free subscription to this Christian Living magazine by calling one 800 772-8577. That's 1-800-772-8577. Mr. Flurry opens the issue with an article titled God's Government of Hope. And he wrote, We must be measured to stay with God. He commands it. We need supporters who love God's law and want to be measured by it so we can be prepared for our tremendous future. So let's be measurable so the builder can fitly frame us together as the household of God. Well, we are now coming to the end of this episode of Trumpet Hour. Please check out our show notes for today's episode, either on SoundCloud or on thetrumpet.com to find links to the articles that today's reports were based on. Just search for Trumpet Hour on SoundCloud or visit thetrumpet.com. And please send any comments you may have about today's episode to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks very much to my guests, Abraham Blondo, Mihailo Zekic, Rafaro Manyapa, and Steve Herkus. Thanks also to Nicholas Irwin and Jesse Hester for taking care of the audio work for this episode. And I'll leave you with this thought from Ernest Hemingway. There's nothing noble in being superior to your fellow man. True nobility 
is being superior to your former self. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world.